no, no, no. You are smart and we can help you to build your confidence. We can, it's not rocket science. We can decode things for you. Like you got this. We want you to feel confident. We want you to feel that you're not alone. We want you to feel that you can do this. All of those sorts of things are the kinds of feelings that you want. So that now we've got, you know, when, when students use essay Jack, they say things like, oh my gosh, it helped me to feel smarter, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what you, so, you know, that's a feeling that is a, is a marketing or branding feeling as opposed to them going, you know, it helped me to articulate my ideas in as persuasive a way as possible, you know, even though that's, <laughs> that's ultimately what it's doing. Right. It makes them feel smarter. It makes them feel confident or it makes them um, feel that this task, this scholarly task is something that they can do. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the ROI online podcast, where we believe you, the courageous entrepreneurs of our day, are the invisible heroes of our economy. You not only improve our world with your ideas, your grit, and your passion, but you make our world better. I'm Steve Brown, and this is the place where we have great conversations with winners just like you while we laugh and learn together. So, Dr. Lindy Ledahowski, welcome to the ROI Online Podcast. I'm going to introduce you, but first, I need to confess something to you, okay? One of the most, um, I just remember this, one of the most embarrassing moments of my educational career was right out of high school in my first um, composition class when the teacher handed me back my paper and it had so much red marking on it that I felt compelled. I odor a red pen, but it was an, an embarrassing realization that I was the worst at writing composition. I didn't know what I was doing. And I just felt like such a loser. And getting that paper back was a confirmation about. <laughs> oh, no. How I felt. And so when I learned that you have a company, that you're the CEO of SA Jack Incorporated, and at first I was going SSA, what does S stand for? And then I realized, oh, that SA Jack. And had I known about this, I could have had more self-esteem, probably would have gotten more dates. And I'm the teachers wouldn't have been like looking at me askance every time I walked by. Why is he even <laughs> enrolled? He should go and learn. Like my mom used to say, you want to grow up and dig ditches? It's like, here's your confirmation. I love yeah, that you started yeah. that. So, well, I, I love that, that anecdote, Steve. And, and I mean, okay. Nowadays, we don't use red pens so much because exactly it can be very discouraging, whereas feedback is all part of the writing process. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're certainly not alone with that sort of initial like, oh, my God, I didn't know what I didn't know. And now my heart is broken when it comes to, to writing at particularly at you know, college or university when, you know, the expectations differ. So, yeah, that that, uh, you know, in a nutshell, that's kind of some of the the kernel bits of, of why we, we started SA Jack in the first place. Yeah. I love your, your story. So somewhere along the way, you, you found out you enjoyed writing. So that was the first indication you were weird, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. 
And I was then, gonna say may, probably not the first. Like I'm sure my parents would be able to tell some stories of even pre-writing Lindy, which where they were like, "Oh, this kid is a bit weird." But definitely, yeah. I mean, I was I was one of those those kids who was writing stories. Like you know, I think my first story I wrote in grade one, and it was you know uh, I had heard that this notion of like a, a deserted island, and of course, in my six year old brain, that became a desert island. So my first story was about an island that was a, de- a dessert island and it was, you know, covered with candies and chocolates and, and all the rest of it. So, so yes, I was weird from the get-go. I love that. I always thought they were hysterical markers as we were traveling <laughs> down until I realized later after I started paying attention, oh, historical. Markers. Yeah. yeah. They, they, sometimes they can be quite hysterical, but... <laughs> You know, you write, uh, you believe if we have mastery over the written word, then we have mastery over the world. Well, why? Why do you say that? Yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you, because that is really uh, like one of those things that I sort of deeply and truly believe. And and I think that, um, you know, if we can name things, uh, if we can understand things, then we can respond reasonably to them. So, for instance, if I can appropriately name a feeling, so if, I, if I'm feeling upset and I'm like, ah, I'm upset, but am I angry upset? Am I sad upset? Am I hurt upset? You know, there, there are all of these kinds of nuances to naming things and understanding things. And the closer we get, the better then we, we can control ourselves and the world around us and, and feel a bit empowered. So if I can, if I'm just kind of feeling upset, if I can then go, oh, actually, like I'm, I'm hurt upset because I got all this red marking on my very first essay at university yeah. and it's now sort of destroyed my confidence and I, and I, I feel a bit hurt and I feel a bit embarrassed and, I, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm not sure what to do next. That's very different than like, I'm upset and my teacher's an idiot and I, I need to go key her car, you know? And so I, I, so I really do think that language is the way in which we can we can start to make sense of what is otherwise a very confusing world. And then, you know, in, in, in my case, that sort of love of language and the, the way in which I think it can be a, a really empowering vehicle finds its expression in the written word. So, you know, some people may um, still be communicating with words and language, but, but maybe it's with song or maybe it's even, you know, running a podcast where you interview people and, it's, right. you, know, and you have conversations. Um, and, and for me, it's, it's the written word. And so, so that's really, I really do think that if you can give people the tools to write well, um, then, then they can achieve whatever it is that their, their dreams might be. So when did, as a kid or as a student, when did it pop into your head that you started to see yourself as, hmm, I'm kind of good at this. I am, I like this. <laughs> Um, you know what, like, uh, when that happens, I'll let you know. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think, um, I think a lot of people and I'm going to be, and I'm, I am going to admit this because, because this might actually apply to some of your listeners too. I think we all feel a bit of the imposter syndrome and we all kind of think other people are better at it than, than we are. And so, you know, when I was a, a high school English student, you know, we all take our sort of literature classes in high school. And I thought, like, I know I liked reading books, but I like to read about like dragons and adventures and, you know, whatever, not, not the things that were necessarily um, communicated to me as like high, of high literary value when I was a teenager. And so I thought, you know, okay, like, I'm okay in English class, but, you know, there are, there are, you know, the 
people in the class who can describe what's happening in the poem really well. And they seem to like have that key. And I'm sort of going, Oh really? The, the, the poem was about death and rebirth. I, I, I don't know. I thought it was about a bird, you know? Um, and, and so I really didn't know. And then uh, it turned out um, I, I was, I scored very well. I was taking advanced placement English and advanced placement um, is, is a set of exams. It's run by the college board. And uh, in the final year, you, you take an external exam. So it's not marked by your teacher. It's marked by a group of people and there's a scale out of five. So five is the top and then four, you know, three is a pass. Um, And if you score a five, most universities in North America, so in Canada and the U S they'll accept that for a university credit. Some will even accept a, a grade of a four at a university credit. So I'd written my exam, of course, imposter syndrome. I thought I did horribly. So I was like, whatever, it's out of my head, it's done. You know, and then it was months later. So I had sort of graduated and um, the mail came in. And this was back in the days of snail mail. So my mom comes, oh, Lindy, there's mail for you. So I open up my, my letter from the AP college board and I had scored a five. Um, and I remember I was dumbfounded and I, sat down on the kitchen floor and my mom goes, you know, what is it? You know, what kind of, you know, devastating news did you get? Like, did you fail? And you're, you know, you got the red mark, you know, the red marking everywhere. Um, and so that was probably the first, um, at least external validation that maybe I could do this. And then, you know, as I, as I've gone on at every step of the way, you know, I did an honors English degree and I did an education degree and I did a master's and I did a PhD and I did a postdoc and I became a professor and wrote a book and, you know, those, and Mm. at each step, I still thought I was a loser who didn't know what she was doing. Um, I started a business focused on writing. I still wake up thinking I'm a loser and I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. Um, And so all of that is, is a very long answer to say, I don't know that any one gets the moment where they're like, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this and I should keep going. You may have those moments where it's like, yeah, wow, that was great. And then you may have the moments like I'm an idiot and I need Mm -hmm. to do something else. And I think it's just a matter of kind of plodding forward and not, not getting too high at those great moments and not getting too low at the, at the down moments. And you can kind of chart your pathway through, at least that's, that's kind of my take so far. So you become a teacher and I see a lot of teachers, they do it because then they not only want to just get a job and pay the bills, but they're wanting to add value to some, somebody's life in a way. So you become a teacher and you do that for a while. And then you become a teacher of teachers and you teach them how to teach. Yep. Walk us through that. How yeah, long did that yeah. take? So, and, and, um, so when I was doing that, that undergraduate degree in, in English, um, so I was also very mindful of like, you know, at some point you've got to get a job. So I, I waitressed throughout my, my undergrad degree and sort of paid the bills and collected tips. And I sort of thought, well, I need to do something else so that, you know, at least now I know I can always waitress. So, uh, the world is filled with um, with places I can work and I can be a waitress so that I will always be employable. Of course, back then I couldn't have imagined COVID where things get shut down. But right. back, you know, back in the right. day, there, there were always going to be uh, places for people who could waitress. Uh, then I was like, okay, well, and, and if I want to build up on that, okay, maybe I should 
trained to be a teacher. So then that was really the motivation, like, okay, I've got an English degree, let's do, um, in, I know in the US, I think you could teach high school simply with a first degree. In Canada, you need a second degree, so a Bachelor of Education. So I went and qualified and did my Bachelor of Education, and then I taught high school English. And I really liked teaching high school English. Um, so that's now my first full-time job as a high school teacher was 20 years ago this year. Uh, I'm still in touch with some of the girls. It was an all-girls school with some of the girls I taught um, back 20 years ago. So that goes to show you that, you know, I liked it and and they seemingly, you know, Mm -hmm. liked me. Maybe it was the fact that I didn't use too much red pen. Um, (laughs) You know, so, so that was, that was good. We, we got along. It was really great. And then for me, I really thought, well, I want to challenge myself more. So as my high school students were graduating and going on to university, I actually felt myself being quite envious of them. Um, you know, they were going off to interesting universities to study new things. And I thought, oh, this is quite a warning sign. If as a teacher, I'm jealous of these 18-year-old kids going off to start their university career, I think I might have more university in me that I need to kind of work my way out because otherwise I'm going to be here as a teacher and I'll like them and I'll like teaching, but as time goes by, I'm going to get more and more jealous and I'll just get more and more <laughs> jaded. And then, you know, that's not good for anybody. Uh, so then, uh, and it was quite, I remember when I, I, so I applied to do my master's in English. Um, and I remember when I got accepted and then I had to come and tell my, my grade 10 homeroom class that I wouldn't be there next year, that I, that, that I was giving in my notice. And I actually got teary and cried and everything. So, mm. so I did quite like teaching high school. Then I went off and, and did graduate work. And, and as a master's and PhD student, I also taught writing um, at the university level and taught teachers how to teach, as you say. And I really like that kind of um, give and take uh, and, and seeing people learn how to learn and seeing people learn how to awaken learning in other people. So I really um, like to facilitate that process. You know, I'm, I really think that there's something very empowering about that. So when people start to see like, hey, I can learn how to learn or, you know, it's not just about opening my brain and having content dumped in that I memorize, but there are like these tricks and tools and things that I can do and, and I can get better at something. And with practice, I can get better at this other thing. And so I quite like that. And, and again, um, uh, you know, got a job as a full-time English professor and that, and I, and that was 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, and, and again, love teaching those students. It was really, you know, I had, really great undergraduate students, um, you know, had some doctoral students I worked with, smart, interesting, capable people. And it was out of that experience, really, that um, the the seed was planted for what has now become SAJAC. And so largely, it was in these university classrooms where I'd have smart, interesting students, and they'd say things in class, and I'd be like, oh, you're fantastic. You'd start to um, get jealous. Yeah. No, I wasn't jealous. I was happy for them. You know, so this was great. This was a win-win. You know, I wasn't jealous. You know, they were, they were smart. But then they, they submit those written assignments and I'm like, oh my goodness. I know that you're capable of so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow you've not been taught the foundational stuff. Right, um, And so I used to think it was like, if you show up to first year calculus, but you can't add and subtract, you know, your professor still has to trundle forward with teaching calculus and you have to figure out um, how to fill in those gaps. And so in say a first year English class, 
I have, you know, I was teaching five novels and, you know, so I couldn't stop and be like, okay, we got to, you know, break this down and teach basic, you know, or, you know, persuasive argumentation and scholarly writing. Um, and so I started to see like, well, then I started, because I'm a big nerd, obviously, I started to sort of do some research into like, well, why is it that people aren't prepared? Especially because um, in the university, often there's this like professor sit around and be like, they're not learning this in high school. High school teachers are terrible. And I'm like, well, you know, I was a high school teacher. I wasn't terrible. Like, I don't think that's the problem. I mean, there are, and then I started to, as I say, I was a big nerd. So I started to kind of research like, why, why do you know, people run into this, this issue. And, and there are lots of complicated reasons. And I mean, yeah, sure. In some cases it can be a bad um, high school experience in some cases, like there's all kinds of systemic um, sort of reasons as to what's happening in the home, access to, you know, Mm -hmm. parents and families who have familiarity with post-secondary education. Then, you know, if you've got international students and they may have been top of the top, in an entirely different education system where the expectations were different. And then they find themselves say in Canada or the U S where you expected a whole different set of things. And they're like, no, but I was really good at the memorization and give you stuff back. Right. And now you you want something else for me, you know? So, (laughs) um, and so it was out of that that I thought, Oh, okay, well, you know, let, let's see if we can't get software to, to, kind of play in this and, and, and provide some help. So that's, you know, a very long answer to, to a good question about that journey from sort of teaching um, at the high school level and then right up through, through university to, to now running a software company. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's go there. What in the world gave you the, the idea that you could start a software as a service company? That's a, a tough competitive. And so you weren't like watching Shark Tank or something and thought, I'm jealous. I could do that. Or (laughs) where did that come from? And why, why would you even believe you could do that? Yeah. You know what? Temporary insanity probably is the biggest answer, but I mean, realistically it was, um, you know, I don't think we really thought of it as a business at first. It was my husband and I who, who started the company. But at the beginning, we really started what we thought was a product. It was like, well, let's create the thing we wished our students had. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only by sort of create, and that, you know, we, we you know, hired a software developer out of our savings account and sort of paid him to build the thing. Like we literally cut up pieces of paper and sort of moved it around across the table to be like, and then you would click here and it would move this way and that way. And and that was how we described it sort of being the non uh, coders ourselves. And, and, and the guy that we found to sort of build us the prototype, he's like, yeah, I kind of see what you're doing. Okay. I'll, I'll go off and build that. And so then when we had a a thing that works better than the cut pieces of paper moving around on the table and we, we started to show it to students and to teachers and to professors. And, you know, we did a whole bunch of sort of testing with that first early thing and everybody loved it. And nobody had seen anything like it. And this was like from grade eight to university, you know, hundreds of people that we were showing it to in that very early stage were like, yes, I want this. We're like, okay, let's go take a little bit more of our savings and see if we can build something that's a little bit better than just this kind of really rough. And so, so we did that. And that, I mean, it took maybe nine months. Um, and then we, we said, okay, well now we've got a thing. Let's, let's see if anybody will pay for this thing. Um, and so we launched it and we sort of tagged on a pay gateway for subscriptions. And, you know, within three weeks we had our first 
paying customer who had just sort of randomly come to the website, tried it and loved it. And so it was at that point that we started to realize all of the complexities of a software business. So the thing, like, again, as I say, we were really focused on the products. We, we thought, oh, okay, well, you use your savings, you build a thing, and then the thing is built and people like it or not. Like, I had no idea that, you know, browsers were continually being updated. And so you would need to have continual tech work at the basic level just to make sure that your software continued to be compatible with the upgraded and changes to the browser. Something as simple as that, let alone all of the different coding languages that you use, which are currently unconsistently being upgraded. Then as well, the notion that once you have a product and that you're asking people to pay, you do kind of need some customer support and like help desk and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And so it was as we were then trying to backstop and fill in that we started to really think about the business side of things. So in our case, the product came first and then it really kind of drove the ship. And now we've been building in the business to support the product. And so now I, I can say, you know, I, I am the CEO of an ed tech business but in the early days, I was just like, I don't know, I created a product. So your, your self-identity changed from that of being a, a teacher. You're also an author. You wrote a, a book, by the way, yeah. we need to mention. But, but you changed the way you saw yourself. And now you see yourself differently. Talk about that transformation and how you, maybe you, you struggled with that. Or maybe it was easy for you. I don't know. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't easy, Steve. That's a really good question, and I, I think t- a ton of people um, will will identify with this. Like our our professional identities um, become so enmeshed with our self esteem, our sense of ourselves in the world, or whatever. And so um, it was very easy when I could walk around in the world and be like, "I am a professor. That is my identity." And even simple things like, um, you know, when you fly someplace and you have to fill out the customs form and it asks you for your occupation putting down professor like that's a thing that makes sense and and i was was, yeah like i was very sort of okay that's that's who i am and and i and i published scholarship i am a scholar you know all of those sorts of things (laughs) i was i I was starting to feel quite comfortable with uh, as part of my identity and then i quit my job as a professor before sa jack was really like had legs and was really a thing and so there was that um, intermediate time where it was like, I am a person thinking about a thing and, you know, uh, and that was really hard. And then even once, um, you know, we had, we had SA Jack as a product in the market and we were growing it and all the rest. I think I was still very resistant to identifying with myself as being an entrepreneur. So as an academic, what, you, you know, your social media and all the people you know, like they're all academics too. And so it's all, and you, and you share book recommendations and you talk about like, Oh, it's the time of year where we have to mark essays. Oh, and everybody complains about all that. And I had sort of like was still in that world. Um, and every now and then when, you know, on, on Twitter or whatever, you know, entrepreneurs and the startup world and VC world and all of that would post things. I, kind of poo-pooed it. Like, I think I, you know, now I can say I, at the time I didn't know this, but I think I probably was a little bit up on myself. And I think I was like, you know, I'm an academic and, you know, these lowly investor VC crass entrepreneurial types or whatever it is that, you know, was, was, was in my head. As I say, I needed to name it in order to kind of come to terms with it. And I hadn't named it. I was just sort of, I think 
kind of looking down my nose at these sort of crass commercial blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, whatever that sort of package of ideas was. And it was only once I started to be like, okay, no, no, no. Just as you threw yourself in with both feet into being an academic and a professor and you took it seriously and you published and you, you know, you now are in this other place. So you have to jump in with both feet. You need the people that you're engaging with, whether it's on social media, the conferences you go to, the thought leaders you're interested in, it needs to be within the entrepreneurial space. And you'll, and you'll find your place in that. Like, so, so as an academic and an English scholarship, you know, I can find my, my folks who do the things that I used to do as an academic. So I was like, so you you have to put in that same amount of work to find the types of um, entrepreneurial communities that work for you, but you do have to take it seriously. And and, uh, so that wasn't an easy transit. I think I've made it now. Like Mm -hmm. now, uh, particularly, um, I find um, I, I take a great degree of pride in being involved in a number of organizations that focus on sort of women led initiatives. So um, you know, we've got a number of, of women developers on the SAJAC team. And so there's a whole sort of network of like girls who code and things like that. And so dealing with sort of gender representation and equity, finally recognizing that actually being a woman in business or, or running a women-led tech company is itself um, something that other people find valuable or interesting. And so, as I say, that's one of those kind of niches or, or areas where, where I found comfort in this new identity as tech entrepreneur. But yeah, it, it, it took a while. Hey, I wanted to pause right here and tell you about a book that you need to get today. It's the funniest book on marketing. It's called The Golden Toilet. Stop flushing your marketing budget into your website and build a system that grows your business. And guess who wrote it? That's right, I wrote it. And I wrote it just for you because I want to help you get past the last hurdles of setting up your business and getting it squared away. I wrote it so that you can avoid time, wasting time, wasting money, wasting frustration. Get the book on Audible. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it on Amazon. But get the book, take advantage of the insights in there, and let me know what you think. And now, back to this excellent episode. Yeah. I love that. So here you are, you're finally starting to go, okay, I, I, can, I can see myself as one of these, uh, these red pinners that run businesses. I can start to yeah. be that, right? But then, then you run into this thing called marketing and branding and this other big hand that slaps you and makes you feel inferior. And you got to bring your writing game to there. Yeah. Tell us about that. And you know what's surprising is that, like, I thought I was a good writer. You know, (laughs) I I published scholarship as a writer and, you know, I... I, Won award. Yeah. And I I used to um, do running races and cycling races and I had a sporting blog that people read. And so so I was like, you know, I got this writing thing down. Um, But your point there that, like, marketing and branding... They are very different than other types of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of have to learn a different audience and a different set of expectations. And so when you're writing in an academic context or for a readership that is expecting certain conventions, and those are the ones that I was really comfortable with, and those are the ones that, you know, SAJAC as a platform really decodes and provides you a system to work through with ease. 
But then I didn't have, you know, the essay jack for marketing or the essay jack for, for branding. You know, that was, that was, that was a world that I kind of had to figure out on my own. And it, and it was a bit hard because to go back to, you know, your original point, look, I'm a bit of a weirdo. And so the way (laughs) I see the world is different than the way, than the way um, other people might see it. And so as a result of that, I learned, you know, you, I couldn't use myself as the template from which to build expectations. So right. for example, to illustrate this, obviously I'm very comfortable with text. I can read long emails. I can read long blogs. None of that is overwhelming to me. Mm-hmm. And it took me a really long time to realize that that is not standard. So lots and lots of people um, will not read a long email, will not read a long blog, will are, are uninterested by long chunks of unbroken text. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's fine. You have to know that. And then you have to do the work to break down your messaging into small bite-sized chunks. And then one of the other sort of ways in which I can illustrate this weird transition from being somebody who thought she knew about writing to somebody who had to learn about marketing and branding that in academic writing um, and even other forms of journalism, often you are making an argument. So you're trying to persuade your reader with um, evidence and you're trying as much as possible to be an objective authority over the content. So I will, I will provide evidence from the text and maybe there's data or statistics or whatever. Right. Whereas in, in marketing and branding, it's about feelings. So what do you want the people at the other end, whoever your audience is, what do you want them to feel? And you are not going to make them feel anything if you are making a very objective, persuasive case. You know, uh, and, and again, that took a while um, for me to realize that I can have all of the data and statistics about how SAJAC improves grades and SAJAC reduces writing anxiety and SAJAC reduces the time it takes to complete an essay, all of that. And all of that is good and persuasive. And, and mm-hmm. obviously, it's important to know that your product does what you say it does. But people won't be convinced to try it if that's your, your marketing. You know, your marketing needs to sort of go where they are. So in your example, that student who has submitted his first piece of writing at university gets yes. something back and is like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. What am I even yeah. doing here? I'm going to go right. start digging ditches. I'm um, still not that. over it. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's saying, it's like, no, no, no. You are smart and we can help you to build your confidence. We can, it's not rocket science. We can decode things for you. Like you got this. We want you to feel confident. We want you to feel that you're not alone. We want you to feel that you can do this. All of those sorts of things are the kinds of feelings that you want. So that now we've got, you know, when, when students use essay Jack, they say things like, oh my gosh, it helped me to feel smarter, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what you, so, you know, that's a feeling that is a, is a marketing or branding feeling as opposed to them going, you know, it helped me to articulate my ideas in as persuasive a way as possible, you know, even though that's, that's ultimately what it's doing. Right. It makes them feel smarter. It makes them feel confident or it makes them um, feel that this task, this scholarly task is something that they can do. You know, they're, they're not alone. They, they, they have the tools to, to master this. And, and so, you know, that from a marketing and branding perspective, like I, it took me, and I mean, it, to be fair, it's still, it, we're still in this process of refining it and, and getting that messaging right and realizing that, you know, you want to, you want to live in the space of feelings, not in the space of reason, 
when it comes to marketing and branding, you know, obviously that's a bit crass, but you know what I mean? Like, right. Uh, but know, it's, it's like, that sounds antithetical to a, a, a legitimate business process. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you need to inform the feelings-based messaging on the data and the stats, you need to figure out, you know, why do people use whatever your product is? You know, in our case, you know, we track, you know, what features are, are more successful and, and who, what age grade, age range and, you know, things like that to sort of figure out exactly who our best customer is. But then on the back of the data, you kind of like, okay, what do you want to feel about your writing? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's something that, that matters. And again, to go back to that commitment, I really do feel that, um, you know, if you can master writing, you can, you can feel empowered. You can feel that you have control over what can otherwise be a very overwhelming world in which we all live. Um, and so that feeling of being empowered is also really, really important, I think. It's huge. It's, I think it's one of the biggest competitive advantages of the leaders that we admire. They figured out how to communicate succinctly, to have declarations of beliefs, to have these sayings and, and the way that they tee it up and walk it through and then put a little bow on the end of the, yeah. of the right presentation or the conversation or whatever. It's beautiful. But what you're doing is you're helping students facilitate. There's a journey you have to go on and you have to learn it in writing and putting those thoughts together and being able to, to, to work through them and then present them in a way that your peers can pick it up and then be pushed back a little bit and have a discussion. That's huge. Would I be correct in saying that you have teachers that, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that suggest this or recommend this? Yeah. So we've got, um, sort of, it's basically the SA Jack platform has kind of two ways in one is just the individual student and, and any student can go and sign up. And then we have an institutional extension and that has a bunch of like educator functionality. So teachers can do things within, within the SA Jack platform. So, um, the way SA Jack works, it sort of breaks a writing task down into its component parts. So it's like smart templating. So if you have to write an essay, it breaks the essay down into its small chunks. So what do you need in your opening sentence? And it has tips and prompts and sentence starters. And okay, now you've got your opening sentence. You need a bit of background. What do you need in your background? And, you know, and it kind of walks you through so that you don't have that like blank page right. staring at you. Where does it and start? So, yeah, where to start. And so as an educator, what you can do is you can go in the, um, into your dashboard and you can customize everything entirely. So let's say, you know, the tips and prompts for the off the shelf essay jack first sentence, maybe that's not what you say in your classroom. Maybe in your classroom, instead of saying, you know, what's your topic, jump right in. Maybe in my classroom, I say, you know, always hook your reader with an engaging first sentence. And so if mm-hmm. that's something that, that I say in my class, I can go in and customize the platform so that it will say that and my students will have my guidance with them whenever they're at home writing or if they're in the library writing or, you know, on the subway on their phone writing. Um, you know, there, there's that kind of functionality. And then as well uh, as an educator, so often, particularly in high school, um, one of the key things that you do as an educator is you, you model the task that you want your, your students to learn. And so you often model essay writing. And so you can have, say, a smart board or something, you know, and you can use the essay jack platform to model the component parts. So you need your introduction, you need your body, you need your conclusion. Okay, what goes in the introduction? And you can sort of work through that in the class. And then the students actually have the platform to take home with them and, and, and to work on their own, or if you're in a, a school that has sort of one-to-one devices or something like that. 
So you're absolutely right. There's the, you know, just come at it cold and use all the off the shelf stuff if you're a student. And then there's the, if you're an educator, this is how you, you can just recommend it to your students and be like, huh, use the platform. Don't bring your bad writing to me. My, my red pen has no ink. Um, or you can say, okay, actually, yeah, I'm going to use this platform too and use it as a teaching tool. So you've got that kind of um, double functionality. So talking to not Dr. Lindy, but, but business person, Lindy, yep, yep. what's your biggest, most embarrassing mistake you've made as a business person? Oh goodness me! I only have to have one. <laughs> um, you know that. Uh, yeah. T- uh, to be honest, so there are so many. Um, I think um, so. One of the big sort of errors that we made. So I'm very naive, broadly speaking. I'll, I'll sort of admit that, and it's taken me a while to realize um, that ultimately like, so I've made sort of partnerships with other companies or, you know, we had an investor who was going to invest and you may have all of the sort of legal language and contracts and all the rest. Mm-hmm. But when push comes to shove, if somebody doesn't deliver, um, you know, there's not that much you can do about it, you know? So if you have a partner and they've given you projections for how much they expect to sell um, and they don't hit those targets, are you really, really going to sue them? You know, as a startup, you know, and, and in mm-hmm. our case that, you know, the answer, you know, in, in those situations as we've had them, no, um, you just kind of go, oh, okay, well, I guess lesson learned that wasn't the greatest partner and you kind of move on. But I think so. So what that means in terms of the biggest mistake is really truly believing that other people have their, you know, your, their most honest and, and best foot forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and realistically in business, there are lots and lots of people who may themselves be making mistakes, who may themselves be telling you a good story, but, but actually have no intention of follow through, who may have competency issues in their company that you have no insight into. So there's a whole combination, like just as there's a whole combination as to why some people show up at college or university and can't write and you can't boil it down to one thing. There are also yeah. a whole combination of reasons as to why uh, partners or, or potential investors may not work out. Um, but if you go in there thinking, well, all of my students can write. Or if you go in there and think, oh, all of these partners are going to deliver perfectly um, mm. and don't build in some sort of contingencies in, in your planning, then, then that's probably a mistake. And so that's, that's certainly you know, where we found ourselves and we've, we've emerged happily and successfully out of some of those um, partnerships or, or that, that didn't bear the fruit we expected them to. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think I'd be a little bit more cynical now. What has surprised you? So when I was, I always got pigeonholed in the sales because that's what those companies needed the most that I worked for. But then when I started my company, I was all these different things that I started to get to do that I never done before. And I figured out I'm good at this. I'm good at that. And I would never know what surprised you about what revealed itself that you got. Wow, I'm good at that. I never would have predicted or expected that. Yeah. You know what? Interestingly, I would have to say sales. So I, if you had asked me, I would have said in a million years, I am not a salesperson. And again, Uh that's probably my, you know, big headed academic self thinking, you know, sales is like some (laughs) sleazy used car dealer or something like that. Um, I, I think I had a lot of ignorance that, um, that good sales is actually about conversations and, and good sales I think is listening 
um, to your, your potential prospects, and then trying to give them what you hear it is that they need. And if, in all honesty, if the thing that you're offering isn't going to be what they need, don't tell them. Don't force that. You know, like yeah. you, you can, you, it, you will achieve more as a salesperson by um, keeping that relationship warm and healthy um, by not selling them, by, by making sure that they know, oh, okay, actually, you know what, our, our product's not a great fit for you. And then they'll recommend you to somebody else where it is a good fit as opposed to me just continually being like, hey, do you want to say Jack? How about now? Do you want to say Jack? How about now? Right. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So that was a surprise to me because I, as I say, I really, um, you know, wouldn't have pegged myself as a kind of salesy person. That's a great answer. I love that. <laughs> so so you tell me, am I, am I right on sales? Is it about relationships? <laughs> totally. Well, you, it's an important part. And a lot of people that call themselves salespeople aren't, they're just, they, they're avoiding other positions and lots of companies will go, they'll go, are you a salesperson? And they'll go, yeah, I'm a salesperson. They'll go, oh, we found a salesperson. Come on board. And then we figured out later, they're not a salesperson. Yeah. They're a visitor. They yeah. just go yeah. and visit people and waste their time and they're not selling yeah. our stuff. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a meeting goer. <laughs> right. There's a point you have to risk the relationship to ask, are we going to do business or not? Yeah. And if they can't yeah. get past that, so relationships there, but it can't be the, the yeah, main thing yeah. that you're good at. Yeah. So you're running a company, obviously employees, vendors. Um, yeah, those people come into play there. Yeah, yeah. How, how's that working for you? Yeah, so um, again, one of the things and I, I could probably even have equally answered this to the sort of surprising uh, skill set that I didn't know I had that, but that has, is emerging that I do have. Um, is is working with employees. Um, and one of the things that I think is uh, surprising that emerges out of finding yourself in kind of a leadership or management position um, when, you know, you didn't come into it that way uh, is that for me, I take all of my teaching experience and it comes into play in terms of leadership. And in some ways, mm. I think I'm a way better teacher now because the stakes are so much higher. Like in a classroom, if you don't reach 100% of the students and they fail, well, they fail. You know, right. obviously you're sad, Red but pen. it's their life. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can't get your team to work, your business fails. You know, yeah. the failure is not an option. You know, if, <laughs> if, if Jimmy or Susie on your team are, are underperforming, it's not Jimmy or Susie that fail. It's, you know, the company can tank as a result right. of that. Um, and so uh, that's been kind of interesting and really interesting dynamic. So how do you um, get team cohesion and, and uh, work well with teams and, um, and then find people who have complementary skill sets to you and then give them the freedom and the autonomy to do the things that they do well without micromanaging them? So that's been actually a really fun part of growing um, SA Jack as a company and sort of developing all of those components. Um, dealing with sort of vendors and partners and like invoicing and, and, and payroll and accounting and bookkeeping and all that, like that I would say is not um, 
not my passion in life. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the sort of uh, like kind of necessary evil. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if you start a business and you're in the sort of early startup stages, you, you do it all. So I think it's important that I do do it all because I have visibility on all parts of the business. Um, as our team likes to joke, I'm the essay jack of all trades. Uh, so I do have that, that kind of uh, window into, you know, obviously the educational piece and the marketing piece and the, the digital platform piece and the product development piece, but also the finance and the accounting and the banking and the human resources and, and, and all of those component parts. Um, and, and so again, it's been a learning, um, but I don't love it. <laughs> So why the name Essay Jack? Why not like Essay Whisperer? What's the thinking? Where did Jack, yeah. who's Jack? Who's Jack? You know, that's the key question. Who is Jack? So Jack is your reader, obviously. So, um, but uh, when we first started and we, again, as I say, we're originally thinking of it as a platform. So we had this platform and we were testing it with those initial sort of hundreds of students. And we were originally thinking of it as like the essay hack. You know, this mm -hmm. is, we, you can hack your essay. And that's mm -hmm. sort of the very um, basic terminology. And then when the students really started to like it, we were like, oh, well, we can't like trademark essay hack. Like essay is just a common word and hack is just a common word. And you, you know, right. there's... You know, so so we need to find something that's a little bit more precise. So we started to toy around with a bunch of things. And Essay Jack, simply just because it sounded like Essay Hack, was one that we were testing. And then it started to have a life of its own. So the students would be like, they'd be working together and be like, oh, you know, Jack is asking me for evidence. What What is your evidence for? And it's like, oh, amazing. So now, you know, Essay Jack is becoming this kind of a uh, person that that is reminding the writer that they're always writing for a reader. So that was really exciting. And then we had cool. other feedback where they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It's like, you know, the jackknife of essay writing. It has all these different pieces that you can, I was like, oh my gosh, I never, heard, you know, I never thought of that. You know, so it started to have all these fun connotations. And so it stuck. If, you know, and again, to go back to the marketing and branding, I don't know now that it's the name that I would have chosen, or even if it's going to stay forever, because the Essay Jack platform now does so much more than just essays. So we've got templates for TED Talk and persuasive speech and lab report. And, you know, whereas um, because Essay is in the, the, the name of the company and therefore the name of the product, people tend to think like, oh, it's just essays. And I mean, that is certainly, you know, our starting point. Um, but there's so much more. So I suspect, you know, if I were a betting person, you know, in, in the next, you know, years to come, it'll probably be some, I don't know, some other great name that some marketing and branding guru will come up with. And, and then it'll be, you know, powered by SA Jack or something mm. like that. So, so, there, so that's also, you know, exciting because um, like as a, as a teacher, as a writer, as a scholar, I do like the creative part of a business. So Obviously. I liked creating SA Jack, but now some of the puzzles are like creating marketing campaigns that work or creating branding ideas that can take you to the next level. So I, I, I'm this new phase where, you know, the product itself is, is pretty great. And now it's sort of, okay, what can we do around the marketing and the branding and how do we um, engage with our customers in that, in that way to, to have them feel the things that, that we would like them to feel. That is sort of the new creative puzzle ahead of us um, uh, that I can kind of sink my teeth into, which is a bit exciting. Exciting. So where in the, in the life cycle of a startup SaaS company are you like, 
you're over the first hump and now you're starting to iterate a little bit and you're getting more fine-tuned. You've got employees. How many, how many people have signed up and are using it? You know, I'm, yeah. I'm curious about that stage. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and I always, it always feels like we're still super, super at the beginning, but, but we're not really. So I've now right. realized there, there are kind of three phases. So there's, if you think the initial phase is kind of um, the product and the validation and the niche market and all that. So then there's a lot of building and iterating at that point. So what is your product? Who are you selling it to? How are you selling? Um, you know, all of those kind of things. And, and are you improving the product and all that? So, so we spent a good chunk of time, probably in total, I would say about two and a half years really there and, and had probably about 5,000 um, SAJAC users in that bucket of time. Then uh, in 2018, based on sort of a lot of that feedback, we rebuilt the platform or 2017, 2018, we rebuilt the platform. And that's where, as I say, it's become this like expansive, you know, it does all of these wonderful things and has this new shiny interface and it's like infinitely scalable. And, you know, we, we uh, moved the architecture into the cloud. So it's a Google cloud platform hosted product. So as we, you know, go viral, which is just going to happen any day now, any you know, day. then, then, then it's, it's totally, yeah, viral. exactly. After this podcast, we, we can <laughs> handle the millions and millions of users, but no, so we're sort of like at the second phase, which is really that refining that go-to-market strategy and product market fit. So um, who exactly are you selling to? As I say, in the beginning, we were testing with like grade eight right up until university. So that's a pretty big um, swath. And so SAJAC applies to everybody. But so now, so how do you narrow it down? What is that pain point, that transition from high school to university? Right now, what we're seeing with a lot of kids who have been out of school due to COVID, but then they've got whatever's coming next and there may be gaps in their knowledge. So it could mm. be that they're transitioning from middle school to high school and their parents are freaking out. They may not be freaking out because they're teenagers, but their parents are like, oh my God, you know, you, you just haven't been in school for three months. Are you right. going to be prepared for grade nine or grade 10? Um, in some cases, it's the, the graduating class. So there are all these graduates of 2020 who have had this entire virtual experience and then they're going to go off to college or university in the fall and they themselves might be like, am I prepared? You know, again, their parents are probably also like, make sure you're prepared. And it's this whole new world where a lot of stuff is happening online. So that's kind of as we're narrowing in this, okay, that's that product market fit. It's those, those kids who are feeling that pain of that transition often and wanting to make sure that they're prepared. Um, and then the third phase of a startup is like, okay, you're ready to sort of grow exponentially. And we're, we're in that second phase getting ready to move into into phase three so we're going to be by the end of this summer we'll be doing a seed investment round uh, so that's exciting because that's our first external uh investment mm -hmm. um we've been running things we bootstrapped we've had revenues we've had grants and you know we begged borrowed and stole from whoever we could you know we did a friends and family round to get us off the ground um and that took us really quite far now we can sort of confidently say okay, this is an ed tech business. We have, aside from myself, there's five staff. We've got over 30,000 people in the platform. We're seeing continual year-over-year -year growth. During the teaching semester, we have month-over-month -month growth. So all of those kinds of like metrics that matter from yeah. a business perspective, as opposed to like when I started and the metrics that matter to me, it was like, does it make people write better? Right. Um, I now have those a handle on those business metrics. You know, yeah. what is the lifetime value of a customer? How do you put a dollar point on that? How do you figure out your customer acquisition cost in terms of 
the percentage of time your team spends to acquire a customer and all of those sorts of things. So now I'm like, okay, I got that. We're, we're ready to sort of take this to an external investor. And then, you know, uh, on the back of that external investment, and obviously this podcast, we're going to go viral. And then we'll be in you. phase three. I'm telling you, this is exciting. I'm so happy my audience got to meet you. This has been an awesome conversation. Yeah, I've had to you. really work hard to pump and get information <laughs> out of you. But I'm telling you, Dr. Lindy, you, you've... Uh, your fun conversation. I enjoyed it so much. Oh, thanks so much, Steve. This is, this has been great. Like uh, you're, you're, you are a great interviewer. I can say that's what I've been telling so my dog Ferns. She listens to all these conversations and I, I have to, she's the smartest dog in marketing. I say, <laughs> you know, she knows it all. She's she like, does, she's, like, and yeah. she, she's like, I could ask these questions. She looks at me, you know, and, and, she's grading what I said there. You know, you could have said that a little bit better, Steve, but she leaves me alone and I fumble and bumble. Don't, don't give her a red pen. Just don't give her a no red, red pen. pen. <laughs> I get these emotions over red pens. So if, first of all, if people want to contact you and learn more about yeah. SA Jack, or maybe they're, they want to be a seed investor, what's, mm-hmm. what's the best way to connect with you? Yeah. So there, there are a couple. So obviously one quick way is through the website. So that's just www.sajack.com. So there, and there are a bunch of, you know, there's contact forms and everything. If you just want to get information, I'm on Twitter um, and it's at Dr. Lindy. Um, mm-hmm. And I think my DMs are open and it's easy to get in touch with me that way. Sajack is on Twitter at Sajack. I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and, and, and as um, is Sajack. So definitely we can be found. We can be connected. We are like real people behind this. So if you send us a message, we will, we will absolutely get it. And then, and then move things forward, whether that's going to be through like a zoom conversation as Mm -hmm. now nobody's meeting in person Mm -hmm. uh, or or a phone call or an email or whatever. So, so yeah, easy to get in touch with. Love it. Great conversation. Great guest. Um, Dr. Lindy, thank you for being on the ROI online podcast. Thank you for having me, Steve. My pleasure. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to another fun episode of the ROI Online Podcast. For more, be sure to check out the show notes of this episode and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I can help direct you to the resources you're searching for. To learn more about how you can grow your business better, be sure to pick up your copy of my book, The Golden Toilet, at surprisethegoldentoilet.com. I'm Steve Brown, and we'll see you next week on another fun episode of the ROI Online Podcast.